when Dennis Rubin was president, who was from Chesterfield, I was the first vice president from Hanover, and Steve Kopczynski was the second vice president from uh, York County. And because, I guess because of our locations, we all met together once a month, either in James City or, I mean, uh, York. York or Hanover or Chesterfield, somewhere in between. So it was a good continuity, I think, for the first time. Many good past presidents, but the first and second vice president job used to be you waited to be president. I mean, that's nothing. So we came together and decided the president would do the president's duties. One of the vice presidents, I don't remember now which way, one would be like a liaison to other fire organizations like the volunteer fires and the union, and the other one would be a liaison to state agencies like Office of OMS and fire programs. So they would go to some of their meetings and then bring it back to their meetings. And we kept that going. Uh, Floyd Green came in behind Steve Kopczynski. And I lost track after that, but we kept that pattern going, I know, for like four or five years. Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson. And episode 28 is a continuation from episode 27 with Rick Birch, who uh, most recently retired from Roanoke County, Virginia Fire Department as the chief. If you haven't caught episode 27 yet, make sure you go back and listen to that because a lot of the history and a lot of the background really feeds into the information that's in this episode. And uh, you'll understand a lot more about what we're talking about as this episode goes through. So without further ado, here is part two with Chief Rick Birch. Another significant thing happened in Hanover that started the regional hazmat team. I believe you've talked to RC yep. and Pete Taylor, Pete Talley, that bunch. We had the very first significant incident in Hanover County that started the whole regional hazmat everything. And Texaco, back in World War II, developed some rocket fuel, which experimental rocket fuel. They owned some land in, in downtown Richmond, and when all that was over with, they buried the cylinders underground. Let's go back to World War II. Later on, Philip Morris bought the land. They sat on it for a while, and then eventually they was gonna build something on it. When they did, they discovered these cylinders. Well, somehow they hired this fly-by-night guy. They picked them up, put them in the back of his pickup truck, and brought them to a building in the Hanover Industrial Airport. It was in the back of the building, just opened the valves and let the gas go out, not knowing what it was. It was later identified as pentaborane, or experimental rocket fuel. And it was so deadly that the exhale of your breath can contaminate the next person to you. And that's what happened in the ERs and the rescue squads. Yes. And when they, the rescue squad, they transported one of the first ones. They had to pull over side of 95. And when he got the MCV, contaminated the emergency room there. Well, it went on for about a week. And, and back at the time, the health department didn't know what to do. DEQ didn't know what to do. We weren't sure what to do. There was really no state regs, anything, no regional response. Fortunately, Pete Taylor and R.C. Dawson and Pete Talley from Henrico had been digging into this a little bit. So long story short, we ended up um, at the end, at the end of the week, we packed it in the back of a dump truck with sand, and they carried it up the AP Hill and blew it up. They said that was the only way to dispose of it, that the heat from the explosion would consume the gas when 
it all exploded. Oh, wow. And take care of it. But that was kind of a, another first. Pete, Pete Talley and Pete Taylor were both Henrico firefighters, yeah. I remember, and, and volunteers in Hanover. Yes, Pete was a volunteer. <clears throat> Pete Taylor was a volunteer chief of Ashland, and Pete Talley was a volunteer chief of Montpelier. Again, yeah. we had that, that connection. I think that's what really made Hanover very good is for people like that. Yeah. And uh, if you want to go back and listen to more of that story, uh, R.C. Dawson's on, I think it's episode two of this. He's actually one of the one of the inspirations for this thing because of uh, his stop at a fire station not too long ago and telling his story and, and the crew there that wasn't even alive when that Finneborine incident took place started asking him questions because they had heard, heard stories about it and it was all kind of fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth hand and Pete gave him it right straight from the horse's mouth because he was, or not Pete, but uh, R.C., was right there when all that went down with uh, with that crew. So yep, he's on. So check out episode two to get more of that story. Oh, good man. Good firefighters, good good men. Yep. When we finished it up in Hanover, I would uh, like to publicly thank Hanover Fire Department, particularly Station 7 in Mechanicsville. My mother and father both passed away after I moved to Roanoke. And, of course, they lived in Mechanicsville. And they took care of both of them. My mother, of course, was married to a firefighter and I was a son, but at her funeral, they came out first class. The fire trucks were there. I mean, it, it wasn't like a line of duty there, but they took care of them first class. And I knew while I was in town that they were well covered. And so my hat's off to the Hanover Fire Department and particularly Mechanicsville. Well, it's, um, it's a pretty special family. Uh, across the board that I'm I'm proud to have been a part of and proud of the time I worked with you in Hanover a little bit while I was on the EMS side of the shop and maybe next time we get together we'll talk about that in AEDs yeah. and maybe even talk about firefighter one and two class up in Whitestone that we got to teach and I was in Whitestone yesterday <laughs> and I thought about it when I rode rode through there yeah and uh and I, I know, remember that morning we were going there, we ran up on that bad accident. Yeah, so and Wheatball went and I were in the back, and you jumped out and said, I got two flight paramedics back here. Where do you need them? And we're yeah. like, where? Oh, no, he didn't tell them we were flight paramedics. Yeah. Yep. We ran up on that bad accident on, on the way down on the way up. to teach at school. One thing I'm, I'm also proud of that has nothing to do with now, but the mutual aid that I see in here but between Richmond, Henrico, Hannah, and Chesterfield now, I think that's tremendous. You hear them covering each other's stations, actually going to fire calls with them. Uh, I really think that's tremendous, and it's good to know that the Richmond metro area is working together like that. When I went through rookie school in 1972, one of the things they taught us is what Richmond charges per engine company and per ladder company to go into Henrico. What Chester, they charge? They bill they them. Charge. They bill wow. Them. They would bill them. So that didn't happen very often, I'm willing to bet. No. We had a rule. That if you got dispatches on a city county line, if you had enough hose to lay from the closest city hydrant, you could go. If you didn't, you turn around and went back. Really? Yep. Boy, times have changed. Yep. So I'm glad to see that, and kudos there to all the Richmond Metro stations yeah. for, departments for yeah, working. When I was at, when I was at number nine, there was a couple of calls right around Midlothian Turnpike Bon Air that uh, I wound up on a hose line with a firefighter from Engine. What is it, Engine up there on uh, Huguenot? Uh, maybe 25. Yeah, I think it's 25. 25 so, um, been, been on many calls with those guys. And it was automatic. It was, uh, in fact, today they, um, they've changed the numbering of the engines. It's not engine yeah. one and across the board. It's engine one. And then I know Hanover is four, so there's like four or one. And I, I think I, Henrico's 201. And, 
Yeah, Chesterfield's 301. So and that's yeah. really paid off. Uh, I had to be personal friends with Bobby Clark, Brad Clark's mm-hmm. fallen Lieutenant Clark that got killed on 295. And also Huda Buchanan. Everybody knows him by Huda, who battalion chief that night. I've had a chance to talk to both of them. And as tragic as that night was, they said that Henrico came in and just took over. Said, we got it. And I know how much that meant to both of them. Yeah. So they were able to get the Arnold <clears throat> people away, and that and Henrico just came over and took over the whole incident for them. Yeah. That's, you know, it's not, you know, I think years ago we always heard stories of, you know, running the fire truck to the county city line or the district line and then stopping and watching houses burn or buildings burn and it's not you know, that's not why we're here and that's not why I, why we got into business and it's you know it, i didn't care if uh it was a yellow fire truck or a red fire truck or a pink fire truck showed up at my doorstep if i would my house was on fire i wanted the right. closest guys to get there and get to work one little quick sidebar when i was in hanover the uh executive director of the department of fire programs job was open and also the deputy director's job was open and I know you remember Willie Halleck. I do remember Willie. Willie was, really? Willie was my battalion chief in training when I went to recruit school. All right. Willie was in Chesterfield. Well, I decided to apply for the executive director's job. I drove down to the Capitol with public safety, Secretary of Public Safety did the interview. And I was in the Hanover fire call, and I parked at the Capitol there. And when I saw a Chesterfield call there, but I didn't see anybody. So I was there, and I left. And that weekend, Willie and I were judging the Colonia Beach Parade down in Colonia Beach. So we, after it was over, we're sitting there having a beer and all, and he said, uh, were you at the Capitol the other day? I saw a Hannibal fire call down there. I said, yeah. I said, I saw a Chesterfield one. Were you there? And we both laughed. Were you applying for a job? Yeah, were you? Yeah. <laughs> so he and I sitting there drinking a beer on the steps of the motel. We agreed that we'd come as a team. He said, you're a better politician. You take executive job. He said, I'm a better operation. I'll take deputy. So Monday, we called the Secretary of Public Safety and said, get us as a deal. It's a package deal. They hired somebody else. Wow, that would have been a – tell you what. You, Actually, they hired Bobby Stanley. Bobby Stanley got the job. That would have been an interesting it time to watch to see you and Willie Hallett working that. Yep. Those so jobs. it came close. That would have been neat. It came close. My how, my how close we could have been, but uh, – Tell me about time in Roanoke. So when did you go to Roanoke? 96? 96. 96. I was uh, 45 years old, and I loved Hanover. You know, my kids were here, everything. But Mike was only, the chief was only a year older than I was, and I made the deputy chief, and I was 45. I thought, you know, I'd like to, to go that one last step. Mark Light, who was from Roanoke County, he and I were good friends, and he called and told me about the Roanoke County job, and he said, Rick, I think this matches your career you know pretty well so i applied they did a national search and narrowed it down to seven and they did something kind of unique but back then they brought all seven of us in town at the same time it was a three-day process so we had different steps you had to go through assessment centers and this they had several joint exercises that you had to do together as a group and one of them it was tough it was called the leaderless group they put all seven of us at the table. And they probably had 10 people back here who was on the evaluation committee. And they gave us a problem, and we had 15 minutes to solve it. So you had some With, people. Without a, without a designated, you're the boss. No, no, yeah. it was a leaderless group. There was no leader. 
So it was some jumped in right away. Oh, let's do, let's do this. It was some that never said nothing, and it was some in here. And I, I guess I was one in the neutral that tried to listen to both sides and come up with a solution. The chief of Roanoke City, I did not know at the time, he was on the evaluation panel. And, of course, when I got the job, we became good friends. And he told me I'd nail that one. So I, yeah. I felt pretty good about that one, about getting along. But so came back. But a month or so went by, didn't hear anything. So you figured a month or so, didn't hear anything. I got a phone call one night about 8.30 from the assistant county administrator and asked me if I was still interested in the job. And I said, yeah. So come on up, we talk. And the part of that story was I was in second place, and the guy in first place was from Florida. And when they got talking salary and retirement, it didn't match. So he turned the job down. I tell people coming in second place sometimes is not, not, not too bad. always bad, you know, sometimes. But uh, it was very interesting. I don't know if you remember a gentleman named Elmer Hodge. He was assistant county administrator in Chesterfield. I remember the name. Well, he was a real professional, real go-getter, and he came from Chesterfield, which was probably 10, 15 years more advanced in the fire service. Chief Eanes was there. Y'all had a system, you know. Roman County at the time had career people and a career chief, but uh, it was a very disjointed system. No disrespect to the, from the people there. They worked very hard. Did they still have individual volunteer companies around the yes. county? Okay. Yes. And not only that, they were a fire and rescue system. So we had 12 volunteer fire chiefs, and I think it was 10 volunteer rescue chiefs. So it was about 20 volunteer chiefs, half res- almost half rescue, half that. Uh, so he and the board of supervisors said, we want to change things. We want our next chief to be the county chief, and we're going to make some changes. They, uh, they tell me stories of when it's time to, to buy a new fire truck or something that the volunteers would politic with the board of supervisors, and who had the most strength the board of supervisors got the new truck, whether they the ones needed or not. So, mm-hmm. you know, just... Things you've <clears throat> things the, you've seen the back backroom politics yeah. going on, and I don't mean any of that bad. It's just it's the way it was. It's the way it was. It's the way it was. So he really wanted to make some 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 big changes. And the first one I went in August, the first big change I made was I realized that I'm responsible for all of this, but I had no ears and eyes out there 24 hours a day to help me and keep things going. All of the career staff was Monday through Friday. Administration staff, Monday through Friday, but even the career guys in the stations uh, was Monday through Friday. So they would work at that, like a day shift day and shift. the volunteers would run a night night, nighttime. night and gotcha. weekends. But the relationship between them was so bad that I, I finally referred to it as like a light switch. At 5 o'clock, it flips this way. You know, next morning, it flips this way. It was, it was The relationship was so bad that some of the career people got off at five o'clock. They go in cars at quarter five, sit in the car, just hoping they didn't get a call. And at five o'clock hit, they left the Gone. car. So no communications between mm-hmm. the volunteers or the career staff. It was like I said, I call it like a light switch. So that was probably my first goal. Knew had to get that better. And my first move, we had five battalion chiefs in the office. I put three of them out there on twenty-four shift. ABC only paid personnel on the clock in the field. And that was a, you know, we knew what was coming. So the county administrator shocked. He said, Rick, before you make a big move, let me know. 
I called him on Friday and told him I was going to do that. And over the weekend, he called every board member. So we, we said we were going to hold together. We said this guy wanted him to be chief. And he called them and held them together because we know you're going to get the phone call. And they did get the phone call. From the volunteer From side the volunteer because, you, because you're putting want, This paid person will come in and take over my fire. And and the good thing there was after a period of time, the three guys I put out there were super good guys. They weren't out there to you know, make a name for themselves, make a show. And I told them, when you get there on the scene, and we had good volunteer chiefs too, first thing you ask them, how can I help you? And that evolved to, well, could you do water supply? Could you do this? To, hey, take over. Yeah. I, you got it. You yeah. got so it. That's so, out of my scope here. Yeah. Here's yeah, the potato. Over, you got it. And so that, that worked its way out. But I often refer to it in the beginning like turning the Titanic. I think it was three years before I really felt comfortable that the momentum of everyone volunteering the career was starting to go. From, from a light switch to a rheostat yeah. to yeah. someone's little to, bit. Was was those were those three battalion chiefs? What kind of? How did you use them as your? You, you mentioned you didn't have those eyes and ears in the field after hours. How how did they use them as your, your eyes and ears? Did, were they just kind of an intelligence gather? Well, no, they uh they were active. They uh they certainly would monitor radio if they hear something, and it was at discretion. You know, certainly going all structure fire calls things like that. But if it's a serious vehicle accident or fire or, or search or mountain fire to, to go and your initial thing would be, unless I told them, I always told them, I told the volunteer chiefs, unless you pull up and you see somebody getting ready to kill, your first question is, how can I help? If you see that, do what you need to do. And the three individuals uh, that I sent out there were just super good people. They all been previous volunteers, started as volunteers. And they understood the system, and they, they did a great job of making that work. So they came up in the in the Roanoke volunteer yeah. system. So yeah. they, they were kind of homegrown. Yes. They just happened to be getting paid that day. That day, yeah. Yep. Cool. Yep. So. Uh, what was probably the biggest challenge? You were deputy chief in Hanover. What was the biggest, holy crap, what did I just get myself into kind of moment when you went to Roanoke? Was there any anything that surprised you going into a you know the Five Bugle Chiefs Club? I'll tell you, I'll answer that. I'll give you a long answer, but my short answer is deputy chief is not a bad job. <laughs> Just like the right, jump seat firefighter is not a bad job. Deputy chief is not a bad job. I'll say you one step away from the bullshit is what I used to say. And it is different. You have some closed door meetings with the county administrator. You, you get involved in politics with the board of supervisors. It's a different level. It's a different level, and it's, it's some of the things – I really trusted my staff. I had good staff, and I probably told them 90% of everything that was going on. But when you have that closed door meeting across town and the man says, this is not to go any further, you can't and, leave the and door. this is what we're going to do, you've got to come back and carry the flag. You've got to come back and carry the flag. And fortunately, that wasn't too bad. Uh, there, there were times. Uh, probably one of the most difficult times was this one board member was – really kind of kooky and, and did off the wall stuff and he was a real politician it's all about him but he liked the fire department so we usually did pretty good so he was up for re-election and the union endorsed the person running against him uh-oh so i get this phone call and i can't say it over there rick what the are you doing to me Doing this, I've tried to support you. I've done it. Every other word was the F word. 
And I try to say, well, you know, that's the union. It's the union, yeah. Well, you pay them, don't you? They work for you, don't you? So it was no He didn't no understand separation. the difference between yeah. No separation there. So that kept going downhill, and finally I hung up on him. So first thing I did is call him a county administrator. And, and like I said, I, I think the world of Mr. Hodge, Elmer Hodge, he, he taught me so much about politics. It's Rick, I'll take care of it. But oh, one other thing in the conversation, the next week they will vote on uh, upping the multiplier for our retirement for fire and police. The Virginia system would allow you to increase the multiplier, but the localities had to pay had to for make it. it. Yeah. So he brought that up. You know, I'm voting on this next week, and I just don't know how I'm gonna vote right now. And so I had to listen to you know, all that. So that's just one example that you know a deputy chief wouldn't wouldn't have to deal with that. Get that phone call. Wouldn't <laughs> get that, but. Mr. Hodge County Administrator is great, and for the most part, we had very good board of supervisors. I had an, another one. We had a, a big fire, and it was Governor Warner's first dec, dec, emergency, emergency declaration. And they flew in for the fire. Well, they drove up. We had a helicopter there. So I think the helicopter would hold five people, pilot five people. Well, the governor wanted to go. Uh, Secretary Marshall there, Secretary of Public Safety, he wanted to go. Of course, they wanted me to go. And a guy from the forest was paying for the helicopter. And my board member shows up the last minute, the same board member. Well, I want to go. Seven mm -hmm. people, six seats. <laughs> so you tell the governor he can't go? I don't yeah, think yeah. so. Secretary of Public Safety don't go. So fortunately, the division of forestry guy said, Rick, he knew I was in the jam. He said, Rick, I've been up. I know you go. You go with him. Yeah, that's somebody who's at least astute about astute about politics and yes. knows the knows the yeah. game. And I had a friend of mine who was chief uh, at Virginia Beach many years ago, and there was a hurricane. And the president of the United States, I'm not mentioning names, wanted to fly in and, and you know be seen. They had to move a uh, supply point where they were giving out ice and water. Because there wasn't room enough to land this helicopter and get them on in. So they moved the whole operation to another operation so the president could be seen, seen. passing their water. Yeah. Big cheese comes. So, yeah. So that's Those just secret, some of them. secret service guys carry yeah. just a little bit of clout sometimes, too. That's just some of them. Um, some of the good things. Well, I'll tell you one more fire. We had the largest illegal tire dump fire in Virginia. Six million tires. How big, a, how big an area is that? Is it acres? Yeah, it was acres, and it spread off of this guy's place and burned up a 1,000 more acres of woodland, and it crossed the Blue Ridge Parkway. So I was down in Matthews County on Sunday afternoon having a beer and eating some seafood, and I get a call from a reporter that I knew real well, had my cell phone, and, said, and everybody knew this was going to happen because they knew the tires were there and all that stuff. So the reporter said, Chief, what can you tell me about the tire fire? I said, well, let me call you back in a few minutes. So I called the uh, duty chief who was on duty, a super guy, and said, what's happening? He said, it's burning like hell. Get back as soon as you can and hung up. <laughs> well, that was Battalion Chief Steve Paul. We had pre-planned that place, and we had studied years before that it was a big tire fire in Winchester. And one of the lessons learned there, they tried putting it out, and they had to shovel all the water in. And as they tried putting it out, they smoldered. And just an average car tire, when it's smoldering, it can produce over a quarter of oil, a quarter to oil from one tire. 
So they had a massive problem with the runoff and had to make dikes and dams and call in tankers to pump the runoff. So what we learned was if you can't put it out, let it burn as high as it can burn. It will consume that oil. And he made that decision early on to let it burn. And, of course, it spread to a 1,000 more acres of woods and to deal with the other fire. And that saved tremendous lives. Uh, the people probably got hurt that day and actually in the cleanup. But, uh, One of the scenarios where, you know, you always think putting a, putting the fire out, the problem goes away. That's not necessarily the case. Putting that, trying to put that fire out is going to create 10 more problems down the street. Yeah. And that was probably my biggest deal. We had 15 different state and federal and local agencies involved. Every morning, talk about Unified Command, we had everyone in there to express what other concerns were. The Water Control Board, you know, we had runoff, DEQ, monitoring there, the Health Department, uh, because it crossed the parkway, the feds were involved, oh, since yeah. it crossed the parkway. And eventually, EPA came in, and they had a lady with them that was super. She came in, and at that point, everything's under control other than acres, thousands of acres of smoking tires and stuff. And they took over that operation, and they were some of the easiest people I've ever worked with. I know with EPA sometimes. Yeah, I'm from the federal <laughs> government. I'm here to help. Kind yeah. of puts in, uh, in this case, it was. Yeah. It, it went very well, and it was all done in about three weeks. That's not too shabby. All done in about three weeks. We uh, Two other things that uh, I was proud of in Roanoke is we had a station somewhere near the Roanoke County city line, and there was a nursing home facility up there that was actually in the city. And for the city to keep their uh, ISO rating and everything, the accreditation, they had to use air station to get there within the, you know, the number of minutes. At the time, it was a combination volunteer and career, but the volunteers were falling off. The city actually closed the station during that time. So the chief in the city and I were good friends, and he said, Rick, what can we do? I got 12 men here that station closed. Anyway. So they closed the house. They didn't, they, they they didn't they reduce the number. They closed the whole station, yeah. But he had to had find to some of those 12 people or he's going to lose them. So we needed six more to go 24 hours, seven on fire and rescue. So we co-staffed that station for a number of years. So you had city firefighters and county firefighters yep. working together. And it's kind of funny in the beginning, uh, the, you know, the firefighters all, there's some, well, who's going to drive the truck? Well, that's not a problem. You drive one day, they drive one day. What about the insurance? We already worked today with the county. No problem. Different. Well, what uniform do we wear? Counties wear county. They city wear city. Who's going to do the evaluation? Well, city will do the city. We'll do that. So what we did, the deal we made was, since it was in county, this capital on each ship was county captain. The lieutenants were all city lieutenants. And then there was another firefighter medic, another firefighter medic, county city. So any given day, you could have two city guys and county guy in a jump seat on the fire truck and two county guys on the ambulance, so any combination of that. And it really, really worked well. That's back to that mutual aid thing of, yep. uh, you know, what, what, what's the mission well. here? And then we came up with uh, the regional training center concept between the city of Salem, city of Roanoke, and Roanoke County. And that started, I think we did that in 98. And they started doing rookie schools together, and it's, they trained, you know, all the tech rescue and all the training together now between the, the jurisdictions. And that was a big accomplishment up there because 
when I went there, it was, you know, the city was the city, the county was the county, and, and Salem, Salem is smaller, and we used to always say Salem, you're in a little bubble when you're in Salem. You know, it's, nothing else happens outside. You're That's in it. a little bubble, but all that, they've got real good communications, man, and working well together, working well together. What was the transition like? I mean, you said you had you put those four or three battalion chiefs on twenty four hour shifts. At what point did you transition to the engine crews going to twenty four hours? It was I can't tell you exactly in time. They were on ten hour days when I went there. <clears throat> and it wasn't about a time we learned we needed twelve hours because volunteers were going to work at six o'clock in the morning and not getting home at six. Well the ten hour shift was from seven to five. So we it was a very vulnerable hour there in the morning and afternoon. So we first went next to 12s. That lasted for a while, and then we started everything from that point on went to 24. How many career staff did you have when you got there, and how many were there when you left the ballpark? I want to say 44 when I got there, and it was like 173 when I left. How many stations in Roanoke County? 12. 12. Was 12. They backed 11. We shared a station with Bartertock County. It was right on the Bartertock County line and Ronald County line. And the agreement was made in 1990. It was a 30-year agreement. And excellent station, excellent location, right on both, right on the county line. It served the public well for 30 years, volunteers. As happens to many localities now, the volunteers falling off and cannot respond like they used to. So Ronald County decided when the 30-year grant was up to end the agreement and got out of the deal and gave Autotot the station, all the equipment in it, two or three fire trucks, a couple of ambulances, the whole station, land, everything. Walked away. And walked away. Woo. Here are the keys. Have a nice day. Yeah. And the the theory behind that is they would build their own. And I'm probably, this is current day stuff hitting that, so yeah. I might, might be getting in trouble. And I, I, I can understand any fire chief would like to have his own station. But if you look at it from a business model, the only thing, it's perfect for 30 years, the only thing changed is staffing. If they could co-staff that station like we like did, you did the other one. earlier, it would save both counties money, still serve the public well. Where they're looking for a piece of land at now, it's going to be several million dollars. Station will be several million dollars. New fire truck down lance, million dollars. 18 people's salary, a couple million dollars for the rest of the time. So, you know. It's not cheap. I'll leave that out for someone else to evaluate, but I think you know my opinion. There you go. Well, let's talk about stuff that happened uh, outside the departments. Uh, you also filled in or served in a couple of other leadership positions. Uh, let's talk about those just for a second, just your experience with the uh, Virginia Fire Chiefs Association. How did you get involved with that organization? It was very early on when I went to Hanover and became a deputy chief. Up to that time, you know, I, I wasn't involved. And, uh, again, Chief Harmon, I give him credit. He, he went to the meetings and conferences, and he took me with him. And I liked it. I like people, and I like, you know, things. And I'll have to say, uh, well, I'll say that in a minute. I really got involved. And at the time, I guess I, uh, I like to party a little bit when we, we go to the conferences. <laughs> so finally, a, a friend of mine came to me and said, Rick, why don't you run for the board of directors? I said, I think I will. I think I'd like that. 
This is when you were still in Hanover? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was still, this is early on in Hanover, like in the 80s. Yeah. Like in the 80s. And they had an interview panel. It was Wesley Dizel, uh, Wallace Robinson from York County, and Lynn Miller from Winchester. All past presidents and, you mm-hmm. know, seasoned, you know, Wesley. The, 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 wise, the wise men. Yeah. So you didn't make it if they didn't bless it. So we, I went through the interview and everything. So finally one of them at the end said, Rick, we think you do a good job. But if we move you up, you got to come to the conference meetings and classes. You, <laughs> you can't you just can't go to the social. all day long socialize. So I, that, that, I, that sunk in. And, and uh, it was a good path. Uh, served on the board for a while, came up through the chairs. When Dennis Rubin was president, who was from Chesterfield, I was the first vice president from Hanover, and Steve Kopczynski was the second vice president from uh, York County. And because, I guess, because of our locations, we all met together once a month, either in James City or, I mean, uh, York. York or Hanover, Chesterfield, somewhere in between. So it was a good continuity, I think, for the first time. Many good past presidents, but the first and second vice president job used to be you waited to be president. I mean, that's nothing. So we came together and decided the president would do the president's duties. One of the vice presidents, I don't remember now which way, one would be like a liaison to other fire organizations like the volunteer fires and the union. And the other one would be a liaison to state agencies like offices of OMS and fire programs. So they would go to some of their meetings and then bring it back to their meetings. And we kept that going. Uh, Floyd Green came in behind Steve Kopczynski. And I lost track after that, but we kept that pattern going, I know, for like four or five years. And it... It really worked well. Was that what started? Because you know, when I got involved in the in the state stuff, there was a thing called the Fire Services Council, mm-hmm. and Steve Kopchinski was kind of, I guess, running it or chairing it. He's or still chair. And and he basically a couple times a year, uh, Virginia Fire Prevention Association, who I was with at the time, came in with the state chiefs, came in with uh, Virginia emergency managers and IAFF and the volunteer firefighters and and VAVRS, and just had a. Legislative side. Yeah. Legislative yeah. Side. And here and everything went down to you know, here's here's all of IFF's initiatives this year. Does anybody have a problem with it? Right. And maybe maybe somebody went, Yeah, that's gonna be a problem for us as in, in what we represent and you so you could vote support, not support, or neutral. Right. And and, and it, each organization got to say what they And getting to be in those meetings, it wasn't it was interesting that you know, labor and management, state chiefs and IFF could sit in a room and have a conversation about something that was hugely beneficial to the IFF membership, but created a massive burden on county governments and the fire chiefs and have a conversation about it. And at the end of the day, it was either we're still going for it and we know the chiefs might wind up on the opposing side or, hey, you, you got us to that neutral position so we understand it, but we can't jump on the bandwagon with you so i saw a lot of interesting conversations around that political and and all amounted to maybe just having that conversation about why and what's the background and what's the history and where this came from and everybody understanding and not that that's one thing i took from working with that within that group within vfpa yeah that was a, a really good group the virginia fire service council was formed back in the 70s ah so this predated the the state chiefs and what oh, they were doing Yes, yes. The fire council, and back then, they thought politically 
the fire council was going to become the Virginia Fire Services Board, and it didn't. So that was before the fire board got created. Before the fire board. But, and it was made up of seven career chiefs, seven volunteer, and seven combination chiefs. And the thought process, because all the big checkers were you know, in there. Uh, but as politics went, the fire board was a separate entity, and of course appointed by the governor. Now, each one of those groups, the union, the fire marshals, and fire prevention, and volunteers, they all have a representative on the fire board from their, from their, from their association, association organization. Um, so anyway, I, I was able to come up through the chairs. I served as president for the Virginia Chiefs in 1996. From there, uh, the International Association of Fire, Chief, Fire Chiefs has eight divisions, one being Canada and seven. Virginia is in the Southeastern Division. Each state chief's organization has one person appointed to the board of directors of the Southeastern. So after I passed president, Virginia Chiefs asked me, the person who's been doing that retired, asked me would I serve in that position, and I did. And I was president of Southeastern's in 90, I want to say it was, no, it was around 98, somewhere in there. But, uh, and then at the same time, I served on the fire board for about 12 years. I was very fortunate to do that. I was very fortunate to have the endorsement. I represented the Virginia Fire Chiefs at one term on the fire board. I came off, and then I represented the Vice Service Council for the next four years. This little, this little, ma- little musical chairs. Game, yeah. Musical chairs, yeah. But I was very fortunate to have the support. There was many, many good leaders, as you know, in the Fire Chiefs and the Fire Council that had their support, and I felt proud to represent Virginia. And I really believe a major part of my success of the people from the people that I associated with. I learned so much from others and just be able to have that contact and hey, I think Robin them had this problem chest well, let me call Robin and be able to know them on first name. So that was a real experience. <clears throat> I took a stab in 2004 at running for the second vice president of the International Association of Fire Chiefs. And you have to campaign nationwide. Because yeah, you're running, you're running. It's a national election through yes, all the memberships. Yes. Yeah. Again, I go back to my county administrator, Elmer Hodge. I went to him because they have to sign a letter agreeing to let you travel and do these things. And this would probably never happen today. He gave me five thousand dollars in my budget for travel money. Wow. And I had to raise the other money. Virginia Fire Chief supported me. The volunteer firefighters supported me. The fire council supported me and gave me money because you literally had to go. Each one of these divisions had their own division conference. So you had to go there and make speeches and mingle and ask for their endorsement. One of the funnest ones is I went to New York. And as you can tell, I don't have a New York accent. Yeah, I'm thinking there might have been a language barrier there. (laughs) Well, the funny thing there, I hung around with him for a couple days. Of course, you know, we had a social aisle and hospitality and stuff. So the last day I was there and they was voting on the endorsement, this guy spoke up and said, I haven't understood a damn thing he said, but I will vote for him. I recommend it. We endorse. <laughs> but I did not understand a damn thing he said. But that was a, just a tremendous experience to travel to these different divisions and meet people. And I still have friends today that we keep in touch with from the Missouri Valley Division or the Eastern Division. Or places like that really made some good friends. I lost. It was a three-way contest. I came in second, but... Uh, the guy that won, he and I are best friends today. He was a super guy. 
Neat. Super guy did a great job. What uh, between uh, pick something in either your time as a on the fire board or working with Southeastern Chiefs, something that that those organizations did as a whole that supported the fire service that uh, you might be proud of to say this is really why we're do we were doing these things for the fire board or Southeastern Chiefs or fire well, service council. All of the organizations had really super good people. They were very dedicated. They want to make improvements. Well, they can make improvements, and and all of them worked very very hard. I'd say probably the most significant thing that I did was right after Katrina, and the, the gentleman I just told you got president that mm -hmm. beat me, he was president. And we had made a commitment to each other. We liked each other before the election. We made a commitment. If either one of us got president, the other one would appoint them to a committee. And to get on the committee at International Fire Chiefs is very difficult. It's a 12-person limit. You cannot be more than 12 people on a committee. So right after Katrina, and all the, the problems they had of getting resources from other states and everything, the International Fire Chiefs formed a task force called the Mutual Aid Task Force. And uh, President Hans appointed me to that task force. And it took about a year. And we had meetings all across the United States talking to different people. A great deal of work with FEMA, you know, because that's one of the mainstreams mm -hmm. in the EMAC program and all that. And we, uh, we created a you know, a document, I guess, about this thick on the lessons learned and recommendations. Uh, so I, I felt that was probably the most on a national level achievement. It really helped some things. I talked to a few people, some deployments recently at West on these wildfires. It makes me think that maybe some of the stuff didn't get worked out yet. There's still a, a few horror stories about, you know, paperwork and legal issues that you know, we want to try to solve to where when you needed it, uh, it could come, you know, fairly quickly and not like, not have to worry about getting yeah, through lawyers. Uh, red tape. Wow. Well, cool. Well, uh, what else about Roanoke? What, uh, I mean, you were there till what year did you retire from the county of Roanoke? April 1st. If people know me, you know it's usually a story. So it was April 1st of 2015, and I always told the county I would give them a six-month notice. So I turned it in on October 1st. And not thinking, six months later, it was, it was April, April 1st. <laughs> so everybody thought it was a joke. I sent the email, they said, they, he's joking. <laughs> April 1st, but it, it wasn't a joke. So, uh, yeah. we, 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 April 2nd rolls around, where's Rick? Yeah. Oh, he left. He was serious. Yeah. So I, uh, uh, it was time. I had, at the time, I had 43 years from the time I started Richmond. I started Richmond when I was 20. I retired when I was 63. So between the three career jurisdictions, it was 43 years. I loved it. I still love the people in the street. That was where my heart was always in the operations. And uh, I just got tired. I was sitting in a staff meeting one day, county administrator and county attorney and department heads. And it went on for three hours, and it could have been over with an hour, but everybody had to say the same thing three times yeah. <laughs> and then didn't make a damn decision. And I just sat there one day and said, hmm, I don't know. I don't know how many more of these meetings I want to sit in. So I stopped by a station on the way home, and this is true. And I sat down at the kitchen table, and the newspaper was there folded open to the horoscope section. I didn't read my horoscope maybe once in a month if I sat there and read it. So I said, I'll look. It said, uh, don't delay the inevitable. You'll only be more disappointed, is what it said. 
I felt a little relief because I was toying with the decision. I went home that afternoon. Me and Jack had a little talk. <laughs> uh, I said, well, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. I woke up Thursday morning. I felt like, you know, a burden had been lifted. I said, well, I'm going to wait. You know, I'll wait one more day. I woke up Friday morning. I had a smile on my face, and I felt better than I had in a while. Decision was made. I went to HR at 10 o'clock, filled the papers out, went upstairs to see the county administrator. He was out. And I said, because I knew he, you know, he might be upset. He didn't know first. But I was doing it that day. It was a Friday. I told the secretary, I said, you make sure you tell him I came up here to see him. So I contacted my office, had a senior staff meeting at 1 o'clock. I announced it to them. They knew it was coming, but not that day. I announced it to them. Uh, PIO did a press conference at 3 o'clock that afternoon with the press. 5 o'clock that afternoon, I had several of my buddies over there, and we would talk to Jack again Friday afternoon. Celebratory, a celebratory, celebratory conversation. That's how it went down. Well, man, that's uh, 43 years in the fire service. Um, certainly a tremendous career. I think I know the answer to this question. If you could go back to one position, one station, one shift, one company, where would you go back to? Well, one, whether it was fire chief or anywhere be, in between. Yeah, number six in the city. Number six in the city. Number six in the city would have to be, have to be the one. Yep, I, that's where I kind of figured you would go. But it's all been good. A, a junior member, a 14, 15-year-old mechanical, they were first class. We had fun. Uh, you know, of course, Richmond was. Hallow was a lot of fun because we were young, we were growing, not that we didn't have some issues and problems. I guess the first real problems were when we went to Rome. And, and again, not discredit anyone there, some super good people there, but they needed, and the county administrator knew somebody from their side had to come in. You were the guy. And try to pull that together. And, and I can tell you, I would have never survived if it hadn't been for that county administrator. I know some other chiefs who gone in that position of transition, and the politics of the board and all overtook them. And when you don't have that back in that county administrator and that board, you, you're dead in the water. Mm-hmm. And not that you got everything you want anything, but that that's so so important. Well, I ask you the the last question. We got a lot of comments from people that they, particularly the younger crowd that listens in. Um, you know, forty three years of experience, obviously a successful career. You get the chance to talk to the recruit school tomorrow for five minutes. You know, what what kind of advice do you think you're going you would give them to help guide them through a successful? Probably not 43-year career anymore, but uh, certainly a, a full and healthy career. Well, I, I think my first thing is I had a blessed career, and I would tell them that they could have one too. So when you, you're my age and you do retire, you can look back, and I say you got something you can hang your hat on, something you can pray proud of and, and talk about. With that said, I think attitude is number one. You can have you can have that career, a nice career, or you can have a job. And your attitude is going to make the difference. And some days it's going to be difficult because you're human. You will have an argument with your spouse or something significant in your life that maybe that day you might not feel like having a good attitude. But it's really important. And I think that's for career or volunteer. I think if you're a volunteer, it still means something to you. I say be true to yourself and to your family. Always do that. And certainly train it. You know, you, you can never stop training. 
And if you have the right attitude and you have those other things, you'll have a good career. Not that you won't have some bumps. Not that there won't be some people you don't like. There's going to be some things you don't like doing. But if you keep that positive attitude. One thing that disappointed me uh, when I was working at a new recruit school, I would do a two-hour history lesson of the fire service, go way back to Roman times. And uh, I had a little printout that really did the history and what happened during different periods. I had some old black and white training fields from Los Angeles, Los Angeles County. If you remember in the real old days, every training film you got was black and white and it came from Los Angeles. And it was on a real reel that had to go through a projector. Yeah. So I had some of those. I had some old clips of volunteers with the siren going off and the volunteers pulling up in the parking lot in the cars and little red lights on the dash and running in, getting on the truck and stuff. Well, after I retired, uh, I offered to do that. I knew a rookie class coming up, had everything, so I called the battalion chief in training, and uh, you could tell he was on the spot. And he said, "Well, chief, they they decided to cut that eight. Said the schedule doesn't allow for it. It's too busy schedule." So I said, "Okay, you got a 16-week rookie school, and you can't spend two hours sharing with these people the history and the tradition of a career they're getting ready to enter." But I hear it all the time, these new folks, it's just a job, all the kids better paycheck. Well, you know what? If you share a little bit of this history, this two-hour program with some of them, it might, might not just be a job to them. They, something may come on and say, you know what? I'm part of something really big. But didn't have time for that, that piece. In, uh, Somebody else 16, is in charge. Yep, 16 weeks. Well, so, I don't... Again, don't want to be critical. Good people do great jobs, but I do think that was a mistake. I think you, it's important to spend some of that time with those folks. And it was a time for them, too, to relax. I was retired. So, you know, I'm, you can ask, I said, hey, anything's free, ask questions. And uh, we have very good dialogue. And I think for two hours, I said, you don't have to take any notes. Just sit back. There's no test on just, this. No test. Just enjoy it. And you could see it within, I'll say, about 30 minutes, they found a, you know, that had atmospheres could be and environment and, and they, you can see them relax and get into it. Anyway, enough of that. Uh, you know, good people doing good jobs. Well, heck, that's, uh, you know, it's part, part of what this, this podcast is about, you know, captioning stories and histories and, you know, uh, stories like the flying squad from your dad's days and, uh, how that flying squad got started. And, uh, I, I would venture to guess is probably a very small percentage of the fire department in Richmond today that knows what the flying squad was and what it, meant back in the early mid 60s 65 started in 65 so yeah i'll uh i'll say this one last thing as far as having a good career i don't remember the year now but uh a my father's at station 15 in highland park and this gentleman pulled up on a ramp and his daughter was in the car not breathing and dad happened to be the one that gave him motion motion and brought her back around 30 years later she found him she found him, 30, it was in the newspaper, I, I can show you next time. 30 years later, found him and wanted to come over and thank him. And of course, Daddy was, he was 80 years old then and certainly retired. And I can't tell you what that meant to her and what it went to my father, because she said he's retiring now. You know, when you retire, Frank Eck, Frank Eck would say, Rick, when you're gone, you're gone, That's, you're gone. But for her to come back 30 years later, and find him and thank him. I mean, you know, 
What what gets better than that? You can't, man. That's uh, what gets better than that. Yeah, I, I, so all the new folks out there, that can be you. That can be you. Amen. You make a difference. I'll say this one last thing. This is this is one thing I, I would say to the recruit class when the graduation. You know, all the three chiefs had to get up and make a little speech. So mine was short and sweet. And what I would say, in today's world, we have many, many choices we can make. Many, many options we can make. You know, the internet and all that. I used to say, in the old days, you can go to yellow pages and you can pick electrician, you can play Trump or plumber, whatever you want. And of course, I say yellow pages nowadays. And that's on Google. (laughs) So yeah, Google the internet. But anyway, the point is, you can make many choices. When your citizens dial 911, they don't have a choice. They're going to get you. And it's your responsibility to make sure you give them the best service and that they are proud that they got you. Yeah. And we'll leave it at that for profound words to, to be sure. And uh, yeah, we'll get back together again. Maybe one day we'll uh, see if we can get to with the uh, world famous Frank Eckert. And I'll do my best to get him. We here. might, uh, <laughs> that episode might have to be behind a paywall with Frank, but uh, that would be fun. Rick Birch, uh, first off, thanks for your service to the community in Richmond, Mechanicsville, Hanover County, uh, Roanoke County, the Commonwealth in your time there and the whole fire service. And thank you for your service in the military. Uh, we don't, don't say it enough to our veterans, whether you, whether it was uh, Vietnam or Afghanistan and everywhere in between. So thank you for serving the country uh, and the fire service uh, over your career. Robert, thank you. It was an honor and privilege uh, that you invited me, and I think what you're doing here is, is outstanding. And uh, Anything I can do to help you with it, let me know. Deal. Well, uh, to our listeners, uh, thanks for tuning in. I appreciate you always uh, uh, checking it out. But if you have any comments, questions, uh, or suggestions, be sure to sh- give me an email. Uh, firehouselogbook at gmail.com is the address. And you can follow along on Twitter at FD Logbook. Instagram is at FD Logbook Podcast. And uh, make sure you check us out on Facebook, too, because uh, if you haven't seen the Facebook post, I think I've got a picture of Rick Birch, senior and junior, both in uniform on a fire ground, if I'm not mistaken. I'm going to post that up if it's okay with, with Rick. And uh, you can see Absolutely. what these two. Two fine gentlemen look like. So uh, thanks again for being here, and uh, thanks for tuning in.